The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 90. That's nine zero of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm Sean Rapier. I'm your host. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. And we have such an amazing conversation. It is incredible. But before we get into it, a little housekeeping. I need to thank some people. We got some just great reviews lately, and I am truly grateful for them. Uh, I want to thank on Facebook, uh, Elizabeth and Layton for your wonderful reviews, and then also on iTunes, Layton as well. Layton was kind enough to, to give us a review in both places. And uh, also on iTunes, I want to thank Audra Joe7, ZWebZ, and Boise Lady. These are usernames. I, I don't know who they actually are, except for Layton uses his his real name there. So thank you to all of you. Your kind words are humbling. And I cannot tell you how much we appreciate the support and your reviews just helps other people to find us more easily. So thank you so much. Uh, This week in the conversation, my guest is about to tell you a story of darkness and despair and then ultimately redemption from pain. And it is such an incredible story of redemption. Now, I will say uh, this is a story of addiction and recovery. So a little bit of discretion, maybe with younger ones, might be advised. While we don't go into anything, uh, certainly in too much detail, it's a heavy story. Jason is one of my heroes. And one of the great gifts of hosting a podcast like this, I got to sit across from him and to see his face. And you'll hear... Times when he's crying, when I'm crying, the spirit in here was incredible. And Jason is touching lives and changing lives. And I'm just so excited for you to hear his story. That's coming up. And then this week in my Latter-day life, I'll tell you some lessons that I learned while going the extra half mile. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today in the Latter-day Live studio, it is an absolute honor and a pleasure to have now, I will say, an author, a published author is sitting here with me, but someone who's had such amazing life experiences. Jason Coombs, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me, Sean. I'm so excited to have you. I've followed you for a while on Facebook now, so I know a little bit of your story. And every time I see you, I just think, man, we got to have this guy on. You have a big story. A big story to tell. And before we get into all that, let's get a little background on on kind of who you are, where you're from. Okay. Uh, originally born in California, but I grew up in Bountiful, Utah. So right in the uh, right in the heart of the bubble. And and then I currently live in the Boise, Idaho area with my wife, and we have three year old twins. And and wow, uh, yeah. So that's that's where we're where we're at, but that could be its own book, three-year-old twins. That's its own book writing. (laughs) That's the next one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But you grew up in Bountiful. Did you grow up in the church? I did. Yeah, Yeah, I I did. My, my mother and father were extremely active and, um, actually we come from some leadership in the church, which I won't get into here, but the, uh, the church has been a big, huge part of my upbringing and the genesis of my story. Awesome. Awesome. What were you into as a, like a teenager, as a kid? I'm a big snow skier. I love oh, yeah. skiing and I love being in the mountains. My dad used to take us uh, up backpacking every summer. So I'm into, you know, fly fishing, although I need to learn how to catch the fish, but I, I like to <laughs> cast. And, um, but and you're in the right place for it up in Idaho. Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually am. There are some wonderful rivers up there. And then yeah. I love soccer. I, I, uh, I mm. grew up playing soccer and Awesome. Yeah. You're an athlete. I know that about you. You're an Ironman or you do the, I don't know, Ironman. You do the triathlons. (laughs) I did. I did my first, yeah, Ironman 70.3 last year. And boy, that was, that was a, that was a life moment that I'll never forget. I get tired. I get so tired driving 70 miles. I, (laughs) 
I think that's that's about it. That's that's awesome. So that's very cool. So somewhere in here, and I, this is where I don't know when because I've only picked up bits and pieces of your story. Uh, one of the things we're going to be talking about, one of the main themes in your life, has been addiction and addiction recovery. Uh, when did that story begin for you? Yeah, that when when I get asked that question, it's you know where where do I start? Do I start with the first drink, um, or do I do I pick it up where it actually gets interesting? There was this process that happened pre first drink, and uh, it was when I was a, about a junior in high school. So I held strong uh, for a long time, and uh, you know that there's a there's a very real principle in and around the hardness of the heart and the blindness of the mind. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about that principle, I think sometimes we just skim it. But leading up to that drink, it wasn't like that was my first temptation. It wasn't like that was the first time it was presented. It was a series of self-talk and a series of decisions and um, this morph into selfishness mm. that teed me up perfectly to say, yeah, I, I'm going to take that first drink. And I still remember that night. It was at my buddy Sam's house. His parents were out of town and uh, they had fallen away from the church. They were inactive. But uh, his grandmother was living with them at the time and she had a whiskey bottle that she kept to, and it was part of her regimen each each morning she would have a, a shot to help with her bone pain and stuff but yep. uh i'll never forget that uh sam and fawns and i were at his house and uh they poured me my first shot of whiskey and i took it um i remember it followed uh, or six more shots followed immediately after it was just one wow. after the other so before i even felt an effect i was just pounding this this uh, alcohol, and it tasted like gasoline. And the, to make a long story short, I woke up the next morning not remembering anything, and and I also remember that I had I had black sharpie all over my face and all over oh my, my body. So they they, they had, had a good time. They had decorated you yeah. while you were passed out. Yep. Oh no! <laughs> oh, but you know when I heard the stories of what I did that night from them through their lenses. So I was like, I had always wanted to be perceived that way by people, that I was the life of the party, that I was funny, that I um, made people's, you know, entertainment, that I, mm. that, that I was a, a light in the room. And, you know, I'd always felt inadequate before that. And that plagued wow. me all my life is this inadequacy and, and comparison. I mean, oh my gosh, like how many in the audience are listening right now that can relate to comparison and how comparison is the thief of all joy? Because as, yeah. we, as we do that um, to our peers, especially growing up, we feel uh, less and less inadequate. So did that lead to more drinking right away? So it definitely... Um, took a course, you know, through dabbling with other substances and whatnot. But, um, I cleaned up before I went on a mission and I, I happened to be in Europe at the time on a backpack trip after high school. And, and we actually ran into one of my soccer buddies who was on his mission at the time. And we were up overlooking the, the city of Lyon, France Mm. And my buddy who I was backpacking Europe with, and we were drinking and using drugs all day, every day over there, um, he was talking to um, the missionary companion, and I was talking to the missionary buddy of mine. And in that conversation, I felt the spirit again, and and Mm. I made a decision to go on a mission. And so I came home from Europe, changed my life, went on a mission, uh, served a great mission. Where'd you serve? I served in Brazil. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Curitiba was my mission. Beautiful. And this is where I think that relationship with the Holy Ghost comes in is when I came home, I was on a very spiritual high pre mission. The internet wasn't available post mission or at least not to me post mission. I came back into this whole new, new world. And that's where the curiosity uh, came with pornography. 
what year did you get back from your mission? 1999. 1999. Yeah. So definitely the internet's booming. Suddenly it's all there. Yeah. So I I begin to dabble in that. And um, of course, that's a very shameful thing to talk about too in the church and and a very uh, big secret, you know. I, I, I want to invite more people to not normalize it in the context of making it okay, but more of this is real that like we're facing this and in our elders quorum. Now we, we actually talk about it. We talk about people's recovery stories in elders quorum. Like yeah. one of my best friends just had two years, um, abstinent off of pornography and sexual compulsivity. And so we honored him in elders quorum. Awesome. It was beautiful. But anyway, back to the, the story is that, what what started to happen with that was this desensitization of the Holy Ghost and my feelings around spiritual matters. And what I experienced was a loss of interest in the things that I was so passionate about, mm. like church, and um, started to make choices to go skiing on powder days instead of going to church little wow. things. And I justified yeah. it away. Like, you know, it's a powder day. It's just one time. It all seems so minor. Yeah. And, and then at the office and I was, I was in college, but then I'd go, you know, to work at the office and I would have myself a cup of coffee and not think anything of it. Uh, and those were the, the decisions, those early decisions where the blindness of the mind and the hardness of the heart began to take effect. And it was a slow, gradual process. You wouldn't have noticed it, but those little degrees, yeah. you know, over the course of time, it's happening. you end up becoming pretty distant up to the point when this all became very serious and, and very real. It came to a head after I graduated college and I was in a car accident. And so now I'm kind of in this space of I'm untouchable, you know, I'm going to church, but I'm just doing it halfway. So you still considered yourself active at this time. You were going to church and everything else, but then you're also just, you just happen to be doing some other things, maybe as your self-justification. Totally. Yeah. I was married in the temple. I I had a church calling. Okay. Uh Yep, because cause I, when I got home from my mission, I didn't go really deep right out of the gate. It yeah. was the, just this dabble. Sure. But what happens is, at least for me, the the pride started to crust over my spirit, and it was in that space where I'd just show up and I would just kind of judge and judge people and judge the church. The ju- the church became sort of like this archaic boring mm. thing i had to do each week but i did it right and would leave and be like uh was goodness. your wife aware of your behaviors no she she was kind of in the dark everybody was you kept it very hidden yeah what role did shame play in this at this time were you ashamed or was it more just People just wouldn't understand. I'll just keep this to myself. Well, I think hiding is the face of shame, isn't it? You yeah. know, it's yeah. uh, run, hide, quick. <laughs> that was that. That was what went down in the Garden of Eden, right? And right. and that is the message: is hide yourselves. Yeah. yeah. Like if 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 anyone knew who you really were, yeah, then you would be cast out from God's love, so to speak. And so, a lot of brethren, including myself and, and sisters, we all. Um, tend to compartmentalize our, our lives and we live this dual, yeah, this dual life. And that w- was very much part of my experience until that car accident. Um, after the car accident, I went back to work. And at the time I was working at the largest television station in, in the market and I was doing advertising sales. I had graduated from college and, you know, I was, my life was in a really good spot. I had, uh, I had bought a house and my wife and I were traveling to Europe and we had yeah. a new car and so, so on and so forth. Yeah. On the outside. Right. Yeah. Which is all, which is all that we strive for sometimes. And we sure. miss the, we miss the inner, the bigger picture. Right. And I, and I show up at work a couple of days after my car accident and one of my coworkers invited me to go to lunch. And in that, in that lunch hour, 
he asked me if I was seeing anyone for my pain management for the car accident. Cause we had a little whiplash and it wasn't too, it wasn't too bad. It wasn't a big deal, yeah. but, um, he began to proceed, um, kind of apply more, uh, questions around it and more pressure around it. And, and then he ended up pulling out a jumbo sized bottle of Oxycontin and he offered me a few and he said, Hey, I know that you're in pain and, um, this doctor that I see, he helps a lot of people with their pain and, and he also prov- uh, prescribes the good stuff. And if you want, I can get you in touch with him. And then he proceeded to give me a couple of pills and he crushed it up on a CD case into two lines to snort. And he said, and uh, I, I recommend snorting it because it'll save your stomach lining and it hits you faster, like the pain goes away faster. And you know, in that space of not being sensitive to spiritual things or to red flags or alerts or yeah. warnings, it was kind of this, like a decision on my own. I mean, I, even though like the spirit was trying to say, Hey, sure, <laughs> be careful here. I did it anyway. Mm. And I did go see that doctor. And when I walked into that doctor, I learned very quickly in a matter of time that it was not a real legitimate doctor, but it it was, it was, it actually turned out to be Utah's largest Oxycontin drug ring. My gosh. Yeah. That is amazing. So that takes you down the road of taking Oxycontin. Did it feel like an addiction right away? It, it did. I loved it so much that, uh, I pursued going back to that doctor, even knowing that it was a crooked practice. And I grew up in a family of physicians. I mean, my dad is a pediatrician. My brothers are physicians. Mm. And and uh, it it still had me in its grasp and in the curiosity. Like I've been, yeah. I've always been plagued with curiosity with that. But, but was over, your wife aware at this point that you were taking so No much? clue. But she started to ask me questions because I lost about... Uh, 40 pounds in mm. this five month period that I was going to see this doctor. Yeah. And uh, not only that, but our bank account was starting <laughs> to drain because I was required to pay. Um, it was either a thousand or $1,200 every time I saw him cash under the table. Oh my gosh. So he had me in his, yeah. in his ring and in his grasp. And um, when it all came down was I, I was ultimately uh he was raided. His office was raided. The DEA came after all the patients. And, uh, you know, what happens when a supplier of over 300 patients dries up, you know, they turn to the streets and that's why you see this 600% spike in, uh, in opiate overdose and opiate addiction, particularly mm. here in the Salt Lake Valley. It was just like yeah. in 2005, 2006, when all this went down, just, ran rampant and uh, the cartels heard about it. And so they started to supply the streets with black tar heroin and, and the story goes right. But uh, that, uh, that quest or that hunt for the fix just just starts to turn into almost like this animalistic obsession where you just have Mm. to feed the beast. And that's when you start to have cross addictions. And if it's not, if it's not pills, it's alcohol. If so if it's not alcohol, it's meth or pot or, you know, all the while, um, the, the lifestyle of a, other addictive behaviors is underway. And so, uh, you know, what, where it took me is ultimately I was, I was found, uh, homeless on the streets of Salt Lake for, for the winter. And then, and then I ended up getting caught by the, the DEA. What? point what was the breaking point on making you homeless well i think my my ex-wife once she caught on and once she learned the score and so did my parents they you know when the legal stuff started to come yeah and the the bank accounts were being drained i couldn't hide the secret anymore and so they learned the truth even though it was a there was a lot of denial on all their fronts uh you know ultimately they they put up strong fences and that's part of 
where I get into the book is like the things that they did that helped me and the things that they did that didn't help me. And I outline those because I think it's important for families to know that sometimes the intuition of helping isn't helping. It's yeah. actually perpetuating the very enabling uh, behaviors of the addiction. Uh, but it was when that boundary was put in place by my ex-wife and I crossed that boundary too many times that then she ultimately she divorced you're me. You're done. And so I had nowhere to go. I had no money and I'm on the streets. Did you guys have kids? We didn't. Okay. So you're, but you're out on the street. Is at this point, is the gospel any role in your life or was that gone by the time you got to the streets? It wasn't, it, it, it was not gone in my heart. I always mm. knew the truth. I mean, I had, I have what you call believing blood. Yeah. There's, there's nothing I feel that could stop me from believing. It was more of how the destroyer spun the the truth into lies, like that I was outside of the access of the atonement, that I was outside of God's love, and and that he was really disappointed in me, that he was not okay with me, and he didn't want me in his presence. Therefore, I didn't want to be in his presence. So we had this like broken relationship and it was all on my part, but it was, it was really severed. Yeah. So you're on the streets. You're literally living on the streets. Are you going to shelters? Yeah. Although they wouldn't, they wouldn't let me in. And, and I didn't really want to be in the shelters either because in there you can't really hunt and use. Mm. And so I needed to stay out where the action was in terms of the drug trade. And so I, I literally lived in a tunnel across the street from the shelter and I would live out of a broken down car or I would find little pockets to find rest. But, but for days at a time I would be awake in a paranoid psychosis and uh, just, just using crack cocaine, heroin, alcohol, you name it. It was, it was, that's what I had. And every once in a while, every couple of days, I would eat a taco. <laughs> a $1 taco from Del Taco. <laughs> Jason, I, I, I'll tell you what, what's amazing to me is I think we sometimes have, when we see people with drug issues living on the street, we have a tendency to automatically assume certain things about them. They must come from a broken family. They must not have been raised in the church. Too bad they never went on a mission. Here you are, very well-educated, corporate guy, married in the temple, return missionary. If there's one message I take away so far, it's anyone. So you're living on the street. How is there any way to help people understand how horrible that is? You know, it's interesting because you adapt to your environment. And when you're hanging out with dark people and you're hanging out doing dark things, Mm. The darkness is your comfort. And yeah. and you really become a part of that under underworld. I, I and I call it living in the belly of the beast. Like like the things that I saw, the things that I did, the things that that happen in that in that realm is extremely dark. Yeah. And so you just kind of adapt and then anytime you're you're near the light. It's almost like that shame kicks in again and you don't feel worth worthy or that you have the worth to be there. And so you slip back into the dark as, as quickly as, as you got out. And I think that's also an interesting principle is like, it's not just as members of the church, it's not just saying, Hey, here's the path. Like, come on, come join us. It's so much better over here. It's, it's like talking to someone with depression. Like they know, they know the path, like they know they're in a dark spot. Mm. They know that, that it sucks. What they really need is just someone to sit with them in that and somehow connect so that they're not all alone. And it's in that context of a relationship. It's in that context of empathy Mm. where other people can empower those that are in the dark to then feel worth and feel the self-motivation to try to seek the light and wow. lean into the light. 
So obviously, because we're sitting here, something breaks, something gives that gets you off the street. What was the next step? Well, there were two events that, that went down that I'm going to talk about. There were, there were a lot more, but for purposes of this podcast, the first and foremost one is that when I was in jail, I was mentioning that the DEA caught up to me and I got caught. I was served multiple felonies and misdemeanors. Were you dealing or was it just possession? Well, so I would sell off some of the pills when I had those pills. Mm. So, cause I had to keep, right. You have to pay for it. Somehow. Yeah. Somehow I had sure. to keep my, my life going. And so, uh, I'm sitting in jail and I was in jail for the better part of 2006. And I, uh, hear the buzzer come on in my cell and I'm on the top bunk and I'm reading a book and, and, uh, he said, Hey Coombs, uh, get dressed. You've got a clergy visit. And I was thinking to myself, I'm like clergy. What? <laughs> yeah. Since, since I failed at, at Mormonism, did I, <laughs> did the Catholic church come to, to recruit me or like, what's going on? And I was like clergy. Okay. So I get dressed in my finest blue stripes and, <laughs> and go out and, uh, I come around the corner of the visiting room and there behind the glass is, um, there behind the the glass is a very large man in a suit and a tie, and I had recognized him from a from a ward I used to participate in, where apparently my church records still were. But he wasn't the bishop then. But he uh, introduced himself that he was he was Bishop Danes. Excuse me for uh, getting emotional. This. Uh, it's an emotional story. Go right ahead. <clears throat> what transpired out of that uh, that first meeting was he built a relationship with me where I I felt anything but judged. He came in and told me that his brother had passed away from alcoholism and that he had been prompted to come reach out to me. So he literally left the 99 to come after the one, the one who he didn't know, the one whose name was on his records and the one that uh, was in a dark jail cell. And he showed up and we built a, a trust and a rapport in that first meeting. And he asked if he could come back again. And every week he came back and it was in that it was in that relationship where for the first time in my life, I felt like I could trust him with some of the deepest, darkest, grotesque things that I was carrying around in my soul that was plaguing me because the sickness, the sickness, it, it really is that secrets are what cause our sickness. That shame. Yeah. Yeah. And, <clears throat> And the disease dies in the daylight. And so as I would share with him my pain and my past and my struggle, because he wasn't judging me, he just, he just wanted to serve. He just wanted to minister. That's it. He wasn't mm -hmm. preaching. He wasn't telling me, yeah, I should come back to church. He wasn't saying, he invited me to come unto Christ. That's it. And he loved me like Christ would. And, uh, and he was my angel. And you know what, you know what else happened is after I got out, I made him a lot of promises while I was in there and I intended to keep them, but addiction is so baffling, cunning and powerful that when I got out four days later, I'm back using again yeah. and I disappear and he's trying to call me and, and find me and nothing. But I got clean a little while later cause I went back to, to jail and he found me working at a little cell phone store across the town and he came all the way down there to buy his family's cell phones so that he could minister to me. Then he asked me to go to lunch and we met for lunch. And then he, I went through another few rounds of relapses and I ended up selling hot dogs out in front of a, a Home Depot. And he found out that I was selling hot dogs and he came on his lunch break and he bought a hot dog for me. He and the state president came and 
And I'll never forget that they put a $20 tip in the tip jar. Cause I was making six bucks an hour. Like I needed, I needed help at that time in my life. Uh. And you just kept showing up and ministering and loving and inviting and supporting. And that was huge because, because once I finally did get sober, which is a whole nother story. Once I finally did get sober, no longer was I feeling like an outcast. Like I had, now I had an advocate. Yeah. Now I had someone I could, I could talk to. And, and even though, and I know, I know I'm going long on this, but even though like I would show up in his office reeking of cigarettes and in my jeans and dirty t-shirt, he sat with me in that and he let me just be me. And through that process, the desire to want to get to know the Holy ghost again and to get that gift back again and to go through the process of discipline. He sat with me during my excommunication. He sat with me wow, on my side and he advocated for me. Hmm. He was there at my rebaptism. He was there and did my restoration of blessings a year after my rebaptism. And he married my wife and I like that story. I don't tell that story. I don't get to share very often. That's awesome. But that story absolutely changed, changed my life. What a blessing. And that's the essence of the gospel right there. I mean, you just described ministering, you know, that, as a Christ-like man. So you take this painful path of recovery. You end up cleaning up your life, which is, there are not enough hours in a podcast to talk through, right. you know, and I think people, it's important to hear, here you are, you are Jason Coombs of Brickhouse Recovery, who has written a book. But what I heard in there also is I had this relapse. Then I had this relapse. And I think there are people who get discouraged either for themselves or a family member when right after the first time through a program or whatever else, there is a relapse. Is there ever a time to quit, to stop trying? Is there ever a time, is it ever too late for someone? Well, I I love that question because, you know, this, this also, I'll reference the book in there. I talk about expectation management. I talk about how we change. And it's not just my opinion. It's actual evidence-based, um, research-based, validated modalities that that show what has to take place for behavior change. And relapse can be a part of of those stages of change. Like it's not just this black and white of you're an addict and then you're in recovery, or yeah. you are fat and then you're skinny or you are inactive and then you're active or, you know, or you're humble and then you're prideful or the reverse there are scales to it all. There's this, there's this evolution. Yeah. And the process it, within the context of the stages of change is really important to learn because I think it helps us better empathize with those that just are in that contemplation stage of change, which is ambivalence. You know, there, there are pros to their current behavior, but there are costs, but they're, the costs don't quite mm, outweigh the benefits. Yeah. And everybody's saying, but look at all the costs, look at all the costs, but obviously they're still doing the behavior because there's benefits. So what, what I, I try to help parents and family members to learn how to do is to get in there in the spirit of non-judgment in the spirit that Bishop Danes came in with me and start to explore the ambivalence. Yeah. Ask the right questions instead of preach to, to them. And in that process of exploring the ambivalence, they come to their own reasons why being sober or changing a behavior is better than the current behavior. That's the reason why I chose to get rebaptized. It was it wasn't because I felt like I needed to do it for someone else. No. Mm. It was because I wanted the gift of the Holy Ghost back. Yeah, I missed awesome. the gift of the Holy Ghost and I wanted it. And I still loved coffee and I still loved my cigarettes and I still loved although I got sober, 
I was still using that stuff. Yeah. I wanted the gift of the Holy Ghost back. So I made the changes because that was, that was my drive. It wasn't for anyone else. It was, yeah. that was my drive. And I think we have to remember that people need that kind of aha and that kind of commitment for them to take action. And we got to be patient with them through that process. How many, how many years from the time that Bishop Danes first started talking to you, how long was it before your rebaptism? About? So I was rebaptized in 2010. And yeah. so it was a, a four to five year window that he was helping me. So how does Brickhouse Recovery come about? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So now you've heard the genesis of why yeah. I do what I do. Like everything I do in my life and in my profession is all around <sighs> liberating the captive and, and helping them be released of the shackles that hold them bound so that they can begin to hear personal revelation and to tap into those, those whisperings, whether they're active or not whether they're members or not. Like I work with the mostly non-members. Yeah. But you know what? The principles apply. It's let's help you clear out this channel so that you can tap into the sunlight of the spirit. And as you begin to get tastes of the sunlight of the spirit, you want more and you want to bask in it. And then you seek more. And through that process of meditation and the process of, of seeking, he reveals himself to his kids and so I literally have a backstage pass to the miracle show. <laughs> literally. Oh, how I love that. <laughs> I witness miracles every single day. Yeah. And yes, it comes with a lot of heartache too. Yeah. But I am so grateful to be called. This is a calling, definitely not a career choice. This was a calling. I had a, another career that I was pursuing and yeah. literally the spirit pivoted me and brought me up to Idaho and opened up Brickhouse Recovery in 2014. And, and I have been doing that ever since. And, uh, and Brickhouse Recovery is a full rehab center. Is that the right phrase for it? I don't know the right words for it. Yeah, that's, that's the right. So yeah. it's, it's a substance abuse treatment center and behavioral health uh, treatment center. It's all outpatient. And uh, we've got plans for a lot of wonderful things to come. Awesome. But, I per, I happen to run our family program, which I love. So every Tuesday night, I'm sitting with my clients' parents and spouses. What a blessing. I get to help them. That's where my, I think that's where my real passion is, is how can I help mm. make good on all the pain I put my mom through mm. and my sister through and my father through? And how can I now live that it's a living amends? You know, how can I, how can I take all of our, experiences and help other family members to get to the top of the learning curve yeah. and and uh, be free of needless suffering. Your passion for all this is so inspiring, Jason. Like I, I can tell you live, eat, breathe all of this, uh, which leads us to Unhooked. Let's talk about Unhooked. How did Unhooked come up? Well, first of all, tell us what Unhooked is. Unhooked, how to help an addicted loved one recover. Yeah. It is the book I wish my mom would have had when she found out that I was struggling. She searched high and low for resources. She was not ready to go into a support group and start talking about it. She wasn't ready to start talking about it to church members or bishops. or she. So she was in isolation with this secret, this family pain. And I just wish this book would have been available to her then. So it is... It is all about how do you help an addicted loved one recover through these principles that are not only evidence-based, but they're couched in my family's narratives and our stories of what works and what doesn't work, and they drive actual results. Oh, so awesome. How can people find the book? So in, in the show notes, I'll make sure that I give you the links so that people can click on We will click share the links and... on our social media. We'll share them on our website, but we'll also put it up on, on Facebook. And this book is just launching. It's brand new for you. Yeah, today. Are you super excited? <laughs> today is... Uh, As of the, the day of the recording, it's, <laughs> it's coming out literally today. Yeah. Which I'm so thrilled that you're here for it. I mean, you must just be on a cloud right now. 
Yeah, it, it is. It's been ten years in the making. I started writing the first uh, few paragraphs of topics ten years ago. Oh, beautiful! So it's finally here. And then tell us in your life now. Now you're remarried. You have twins, three-year-old twins, which is so amazing. Was there any scenario where Jason Coombs on the street could have seen Jason Coombs today? Oh, if you would have told me that my life would look like this back then, I wouldn't have believed you. And if I would have listed out all my greatest dreams and desires when I first got sober, I would have cut myself short because what God has done with me and my life and the blessings and abundance and prosperity that he's given me, um, and the, the appropriate amount of struggles and opposition as well. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't have, uh, yeah, I I would have never dreamed that I'd have this. And I think one of the, the coolest things that I'm doing right now is I was called by, uh, my stake president to, he said, Jason, I'm calling you to address the pornography issue in our stake. Nice. Awesome. And I'm like, you're the, you're the guy I'm at who the can do base this, of Mount Everest and <laughs> flip flops and a canteen. How do you do that? You know, <laughs> no, if anyone can do this, you can do this. You are the right guy to do this. That was inspired. I know that. I know that was inspired. Uh, we're just about there on time, but other than buy the book Unhooked, which I am ordering my copy today. I cannot wait. I'm super excited. Um, but other than telling people to buy the book, there are right now people listening who their daughter, son, sister, brother, spouse, best friend, former mission companion, bishop, whomever is struggling with addiction to pornography, unhealthy eating habits, uh, substance, whatever it is, and they're looking for something and they, they're about done. If you had 30 seconds with them, what would you tell that person? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, have a lot of thoughts coming through my mind, but the one that stands out is when my parents first learned about my addiction, they, um, they all eventually ended up in uh, a family program at the first treatment center that I was court ordered to. And as they were sitting there in their pain, in their discomfort, uh, the therapist taught them a lesson that I that I like to share because it's in the spirit of before you put on the oxygen mask of another person, put a, put your own on, and that's a very true principle that you've got to be well, you've got to be in a good space if you're going to influence mm-hmm. your addicted loved one, and so uh, the principle that they learned that that night in family group was that imagine your addicted loved one. In this case, it was me out in the middle of a lake, dropping boulders in the water with every addicted behavior, every time they lie, um, every time they relapse and those ripples, by the time they arrive to the beach are the size of tsunami waves. And the parents and families are standing on the beach, calling out saying, come in, you know, stop dropping the boulders. And they're getting pummeled the the tsunami waves are just hitting him and and the counselor said jana doug get off the beach you don't have to stand there in fact go to go to higher ground and and when you get to higher ground you know it still might be raining so make sure you put on an emotional raincoat and i talk a little bit more about that in the book but i think that's really important is that if you're going to influence people you've got to be in a space where you can you're not driven by fear, but you're driven by love. Yeah. Oh, I love that so much. That is just the perfect way to wrap this up. Jason, I could talk to you for the next five hours because I think your life and your mission your mission is so fascinating. But we're going to wrap up with the question that we ask all of our guests, which is, Jason Coombs, what does being a member of the church mean to you? It means so much to me. I have never been more proud to be a member of the church in, in all of my life. I feel like the church is a vehicle for me to share my experience, strength, and hope, and to help others. I don't know where else in the world I can go and do that kind of work at the level I'm able to do it 
with the power that I've been given to do it with and the support that I'm able to receive from my leaders. It's everything to me. It is being a member of the church. Once you've been out of the church and you go through what I went through, and then you get a taste of what it is coming back and you get that gift of the Holy Ghost again, it's just the most, I don't have words. I don't have words, but I, I hope to never stray or leave or question the, the veracity of it, because just take it from someone who's been out there and the, the world gobbled me up and spit me out and I'm back and I'm helping gather and build the kingdom of God on earth and prepare for like his coming. That's, that's the whole work. And I'm hastening it. I'm trying to work as hard and fast as I can. Cause as we know, time is running out. <laughs> <laughs> the book is called unhooked. The author is Jason Coombs. If you have someone in your life who deals with addiction it is a great book. If you don't have someone in your life right now who deals with addiction, you probably do and don't know it, or you will. And it's really a book for everyone, because everyone at some point will face this in some magnitude. And so please go out and again, check our social media for links to the book. Uh, the book is called Unhooked. If you feel you need more help than that, Brickhouse Recovery is in Idaho and offers great solutions for people and families who are struggling with this addiction. He is a now published author. He is a father, a husband, and is helping a whole lot of people to do magnificent things. Jason Coombs, thank you for sharing your Latter-day life with us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Sean. And my thanks to Jason Coombs for coming and sitting down and sharing his life story. As you can probably tell, he's a very humble, vulnerable, accessible man, and I'm so grateful for him. Please pick up the book Unhooked for yourself or for someone who could use it. I just cannot recommend it enough because Jason is an incredible guy. Uh, this week in my Latter-day life, I had an interesting experience down in St. George, uh, I have taken up running, and I wish that you could see me doing air quotes when I talk about running. I think uh, someone determined to be somewhere pushing a stroller could uh, pass me pretty easily. I'm not fast, but I'm committed. I am going to run, and, and I keep setting little goals for how far I want to go. And this past week, uh, I was down in St. George. I was taking my son down to a motocross event for his birthday. Very fun, fun weekend. Uh, but I got up Saturday morning and had a certain amount of uh, distance that I wanted to run. And I went down to this little trail area that I just love. It starts at a park and it's right by a river. And I took off from there and was doing my run. And it was going to be the longest I have run in the past little while. Years ago, I I used to run quite a bit, but this was going to be the longest since I started running again. And I was trucking along, I was feeling okay, but I was knowing I was pushing it a little bit further. And I got to almost a quarter of a mile left and just pushing for that finish. And there was an older couple, they were quite elderly, and they were walking the other way. They were walking toward me. And the woman started waving me down. Well, I was already trying to do my longest run, and I was already out of breath, and I knew if I stopped, man, I don't know if I could get started again. And so I didn't want to stop, so I kind of slowed down a little bit, and she said, excuse me, do you know if the Virgin River Trail is up here? Do you know where the Virgin River Trail is? And I said, I, I have no idea. I'm from out of town. And she said, well, where's the Virgin River? I said, I, I don't know if that's the Virgin River there. I don't know. And... I just kind of kept running and I said, I'm so sorry. And I kept running and she looked so flustered. And so I ran and I finished my distance running. The whole goal was to not stop and walk. I finished, got to the end, wheezing, huffing and puffing. And then it sank in. I felt terrible. I hadn't helped this woman at all. And I kind of just brushed her off and kept on running and so I started walking to follow them. Well, I will tell you, for elderly people, these are two people who could walk fast. 
And so in order to catch them, I started kind of jogging and running and running as fast as I could just to catch up to them. And I had already run as far as I thought I could, but I ran a little more than a quarter of a mile back to catch up to them. And I stopped them and I said, I'm really sorry about earlier. You know, there is a river down here. And they said, oh yeah, that's kind of what they described. And I said, yeah, if you go here, make sure to make a left under the bridge. And I really was able to help them and we were able to figure it out together. (laughs) And then I started to walk back. Except it was really awkward because now I was walking with these people. (laughs) As I walked for a couple steps, I thought I've got to get past them. So I ran another quarter of a mile just to get some distance from them. And afterward, I had run a half a mile further than I had planned and than I had before. And there's a great lesson in there for me that, you know, stopping to help those people would have been a a lot easier than running everything extra. But I'm grateful that I went back because it pushed me to run that much further than I had planned. And I was able to help some really nice people, hopefully to find their way. You know, not everything that seems like an obstacle is there just to hurt us. Sometimes it helps us lengthen our stride. And I I cannot say that I went the extra mile that day. I quite literally went the extra half mile, but it sure did turn out to be a blessing. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. And thank you again to Jason Coombs. Uh, If you want to find us, uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, We can be found on our website at latterdaylives.com. And I will have links to the book. Uh, We'll share it a couple of times this week on Facebook. And uh, we'll point to it on Instagram and on our website. So please check it out. Please go buy the book. Uh, Check out the links on social media. And so until next week, when we meet again, please remember, there is a great big beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>